This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a new book out called How to Get Sued. And I write a blog uh, called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law and also contribute to Legal Blog Watch for Law.com. Well, today we're on Lawyer to Lawyer. We're going to have a conversation with uh, someone who is uh, very well regarded uh, in the field of law. We're going to talk about her experience, uh, some of the Cases she's been involved in, uh, and, uh, her work both, uh, off the bench and now on the bench, and, uh, also about her recent entree into the, uh, field that we're so familiar with here, and that's blogging. Well, Bob, our guest today is Judge Nancy Gertner from the United States District Court for Massachusetts. As a lawyer, Judge Gertner was a passionate advocate for women's equality and tireless in her efforts for civil rights. She was an accomplished criminal defense lawyer, both for high-profile defendants and as appointed counsel for the indigent. As a judge, she's crafted clear and compelling decisions in cases engaging race in public schools, federal fair housing, and employment discrimination. Judge Kirtner, whom President Clinton nominated to the bench in 1994, has long written on legal matters in law journals and newspaper op-ed pages. For the past nine years, she's also taught two courses on sentencing, one a semester, at Yale Law School, which is her alma mater. Judge Gertner also blogs for the legal affairs section of Convictions of Slate magazine, as you mentioned. And she's been selected to receive the 2008 Thoroughgood Marshall Award for the American Bar Association Section of Individual Rights and Responsibilities, which recognizes her contributions to advancing human rights and civil liberties. Welcome to the show, Judge Gertner. Thank you. Good to be here. Judge Gertner, I I would like to kind of... uh, there's a lot to talk about, but I think one thing our our listeners are are going to be uh, particularly interested in, in hearing about is is how it is that that you came to be a, a blogger. Uh, my understanding is that you're the only state or federal judge in Massachusetts blogging, and and on the on the nationally, I can I can think of Judge Posner and and not not none others uh, at least on the federal bench. So, how did you get into this? Well, I, I love to write. I write op-eds and I write articles all the time. It's uh, there's a limited amount that a judge can say, um, can talk about. You can't talk about pending cases. You can't uh, even talk about other people's pending cases. Um, but you can talk about general issues having to do with the administration of justice. Uh, so from my op-ed world, that blogging didn't seem to be a great leap. One of the students, one of my students in my sentencing class, Emily Bazelon, works for Slate and asked me to to join, and I said yes. I didn't quite understand that uh, my fellow bloggers are online all the time. And I, of course, have a day job, which made it a little hard for me to participate. What inspired you in the beginning to get into law in the first place? Oh, th- that's a funny story. You know, um, my parents were wanted me to get married, which was their the highest and best use of a woman as far as they were concerned. So I didn't have any support particularly at home. Um, I wanted to be president of the United States. And uh, where this came from, I have no idea. And uh, I read about Abraham Lincoln. He was a senator first, and uh, and before that, he was a lawyer. So I just got stuck in phase one. But, you know, there's still the future. 
And tell us a little bit about your your early legal career before you went on the bench, the kinds of work that you did then. Well, again, you know, all of us got to be where we are in part by accident. I I really didn't plan to practice for an extended period of time. I planned to practice for a little bit, and then I planned to teach. Um, One of my early cases happened to be a very celebrated case involving um, uh, Commonwealth versus Susan Sachs. She was accused of... Uh, robbing banks to get money for the anti-war effort. Uh, I got into the case because she wanted a woman lawyer, and I was one of the few women criminal defense lawyers at the time. And that experience pretty much catapulted me into this career. We uh, we essentially won the case for her in the sense that she the first ca- the first trial was a hung jury, followed by pleading to a lesser charge. But the experience of of Using the skills I had learned uh, to help people to try to affect justice, um, it, it was just seductive, and I couldn't get out. How did you get involved with women's rights? That was, you know, in the DNA of many women going to law school in the 70s. Um, I graduated uh, college in the in the 60s and went to law school. Graduated in 71, and it was. Um, it was what our lives were about. It was why we were doing what we were doing. And at Yale in particular, we put together one of the first, I think it was the first women in the law courses, which was, uh, which was a course to talk about the relationship between the law and women's subordination. So it was, it was really in the air and it was the only way to be. I mean, you couldn't be doing the kind of work we were doing and not be a feminist. Um, and not be interested in women's rights. Judge Gertner, I, I uh, remember seeing you you speak uh, back when I was uh, still in law school, not not to date either of us. Uh, That's okay. It's unavoidable. <laughs> and uh, certainly being inspired and in, in, in seeing you as, as certainly as somewhat of an, of an activist. And, and uh, I wonder how it went from being certainly a, an advocate uh, and an outspoken one to uh, making the transition to the bench. You know, I get asked that a, a lot. It's, it's first, it's a, an interesting question. People, um, when I when I was sworn in as a judge, I gave a talk in which I said that everybody has to move to neutral. That being a judge and being neutral is alien to everyone, and anyone who says otherwise is lying. Um, so prosecutors have to move to neutral, and I had to do that as well. In one sense, it's easier for me because I know exactly what my opinions are. I know exactly what I stand for. Um, I know the, the, the advocacy that I did. And so I'm not, uh, I, it, that makes it easier to identify your biases, to struggle with them. I think it's harder for judges who are pretending that somehow they've become a different person and forgot everything they'd ever done before. But, but it is a struggle. Um, I, I like to describe it sometimes as a parable of the princess and the pea where uh, the princess is put on top of a pile of mattresses and asked if she could feel the pea under the pile of mattresses. And uh, some of what I do, it feels like that, where there's a, uh, I'm, I want to have, I want the outcome to be just. I have to go through all the layers and layers and layers of law, and sometimes I can accomplish the just result, and sometimes I can't. But I certainly... You know, know the way I, I the way I want things to be. I also know the limitations of the role. 
Well, when, when you got the call from, from President Clinton's office or, or wherever these calls come from, uh, it, it, what was your reaction? I mean, did you have reservations about it at all? Um, you know, I, I didn't have reservations. I wanted it, to, I wanted to try it. I, um, you know, I had practiced for 23 years at that point, and I certainly wanted to try it. There's an interesting story about Senator Kennedy, which I think sort of summarizes this. When I was interviewed by Senator Kennedy, who was the person who did the nominating, I had gone to school with the Clintons, but it was really Senator Kennedy's pressure that they got this through. So I'm interviewing with him, and he is asking me, you know, all sorts of questions. It's very cordial. And then at the end of the interview, I remember getting up and saying, Senator Kennedy, I have a bone to pick with you. And you know how when you're interviewing, thinking that you don't have a prayer, you're loose and funny, and, well, I thought that's what I thought. And so I say, I, I have a bone to pick with you. And he says, what, what do you mean? At this point, all the staff members are visibly frightened in the room. Um, and I say, just once, you, the, the federal judgeship is a reward, supposedly a reward for a, a life in law well spent. It's a, uh, you know, we, we cap a, 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 an important career with these appointments. Just once, do it for someone who's been involved in criminal defense or civil rights work as opposed to someone who's been involved in a firm practice or a U.S. attorney's office. And that's what he, that's what he wanted to do. Um, and I felt that it was important to be that person on this bench. You know, not, not again, not so that I can, um, you know, implement my philosophy, uh, which is the way people see it any more than anyone else does. But I do come looking at things in a different perspective. I do see things that perhaps others who didn't have my background wouldn't have seen. Well, you thought, I guess, at some point that you weren't going to actually get on the bench because of your involvement in some controversial cases. Oh, y- yes. I mean, I- I'm describing this as if it was an easy process. It was a uh, it was uh, really pretty awful, and there were lots of times I was held up for about ten months, and there were lots of times during the course of that that I would have dropped out because so much of what I did was being trivialized and caricatured, and that's very hard to hear. I want to return just to to, to this question of blogging and and the broader issue of of judges speaking out publicly uh, in the press. Uh, I, I know that you've. Uh, I, 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 you've, you've posted uh, maybe half a dozen times or so on the blog. I understand you, you have a day job. Uh, what, are you, what are your feelings about the, the I guess, the parameters of, of what judges can and cannot say uh, in public? Uh, are you satisfied with them, or do you feel that they need to be revised in some way? Oh, I, I definitely think they need to be revised. I mean, what we're allowed to say now, the current situation without any changes in the codes of conduct. What we're allowed to say is this. We're allowed to talk about the administration of justice. You're allowed to talk about, you could even talk about proposed legislation. You can talk about the organization of the courts. And on the blog, I talk about prosecutorial discretion and, um, you know, jury selection, not having to do with any particular case, but just general policy issues. And I think, I think that that's critical. That's not just something we're allowed to say. I think it's something we ought to talk about because as, as any newsman or, or broadcaster will say, the people who know the most about the system are the ones who are the ones who are silenced. So I think that that's part of the job um, to talk about those things. What I'm not permitted to do is to talk about any of my cases or even to comment on other people's cases. 
I think that that has to change. It has to change in a way that is consistent with being a judge. In other words, uh, I'm not suggesting that we all appeal up here on the O'Reilly factor. There has to be a way of responding, and the ABA and the Massachusetts uh, Massachusetts are sort of toying with the idea of how to how to make that kind of change. For in Massachusetts, as I understand it, for example, if a judge hasn't written a decision about something, but later on there is, uh, or even if they have, um, later on there's a controversy, like the controversy with Katha Tutman, the judge um, in Massachusetts that had been appointed by Governor Romney. If there's a controversy and the judge wants to write an opinion that would be filed in open court describing what he or she did, even if it's after the fact, these rules would permit that, uh, would even encourage it. On the ABA side, they are talking about a right of response in the face of criticism um, and leave open the question of how to do that. I think that that is so important. You know, you have to know that because I'm a blogger means that I'm also on the internet, which is unusual, I guess, for my age. And I am, I, I'm into the media from beginning to end. I'm appalled by the way our profession and judges in particular are talked about on the media. There, it, it, what I worry about is that, uh, whereas, you know, a hundred years ago, Judges would get people's respect by just the status of the office. I think now we have to earn it and prove it, and that means engaging with the with the public. Would you encourage other lo- judges to blog? Well, the blogging actually is, in one sense, it's easier than having this conversation with you guys uh, because, um, you know, <laughs> blogging. I can check for typos. I can think about. Um, yeah, I think I, I would. Uh, you know, I didn't participate not only because of my, didn't participate as much as I wanted to, not just because of my day job, but, um, you know, there, sometimes they were blogging about a Supreme Court case that came down. And, uh, while as a law professor I will critique things, I didn't, the level of discussion was very, sometimes much more pointed and critical than I wanted to be. You know, I can criticize as an academic. It's a little hard to, you don't, you don't want judges to be involved in, uh, what we do still has to be under the umbrella of the appearance of propriety and not undermining the office. So there are, there are style limitations as well. But I think other judges should, should too. I, I think people have to know, you know, your, your question about, um, uh, my past and becoming a judge, people have to know what a struggle this job is. It, it's, it's not easy to have uh, personal opinions, as all of us do, understand what the role is, know that we're not elected, uh, understand the criticism. It is a very hard job, and the best way for people to see that is to hear us talk about it. Is there more that the judges could be doing now under under the current rules to kind of open up the process to the public? Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of lawyers understand the difficulty of the job. Maybe not all of them even, but but uh, I think the general public certainly has a lot of misconceptions. Uh, you know, about about judging in general, about particular topics such as sentencing, which is I know something you've written about. Is there more that judges can be doing now to be uh, helping the public to better understand all of this? Well, there, there's there's lots of levels. I mean, one one the minimum is, you know, you write a decision in English. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, but we write a decision in English rather than legal speak. Um, I try to make sure that the first 
uh, five or six pages of any decision lay out the issue in a way that anyone who's not legally trained would understand. The press tells us that you have to make sure that your decisions aren't released at five in the afternoon when they have a deadline of six. In other words, sort of understand that you have a public audience that you have to participate in as as well. Um, but there are other things. I, I was in Australia two years ago, and one uh, friend of mine had a program called You Be the Judge, and he ran around uh, the province that he was in with sentencing hypotheticals and gave them to audiences and said, you tell me what you think should be done. And then they would have a discussion about the sentence. The outcomes, of course, were less than the legislature was then calling for, you know, they were far less punitive than the legislature was, but more significantly, they learned that it's hard, that it's not about caricaturing people and, you know, summarizing people in a sentence. Um, so, yeah, I think there ought to be programs like that. I think the judges should be in the schools. Um, I think that we have to let people know, not be, par- not allow ourselves to be parodied as we are in the in the media. What would you change about the appointment process now that you've been through it and seen how others have gone through it? Well, I'm I'm not I'm not sure that there's a great deal that we can change about it because to some degree it reflects the divisions in the society. In other words, it it, um, it really reflects how divided we are as a country about so many issues. And I don't think it was unfair to ask me about those issues. What what was unfair was the caricatures. I mean, I will say this, that I have a funny story that uh, I tell in speeches that I give. Um, a, a week before I went for my hearing, uh, a, a local reporter who knew, didn't know anything about me, nothing at all, uh, compared me to Lorena Bobbitt. Judge Gertner, he said, will do with her gavel what Lorena did to her husband with a kitchen knife. It was nothing but... Sarcasm and parody. It had nothing to do who I was or what I did or what kind of judge I would become. That we can try to eliminate. In other words, it's fair to talk about what I'm going to do and what my feelings are about public issues of the day, so long as judges can answer without forecasting a result in a case. But it's the sarcasm. Don't you see sarcasm and uh, hyperbole in media as kind of the root the way that uh, society generally treats it. I mean, you know, Don Henley's song about uh, dirty laundry is the, right. A no, I think that's right. That. I think that's right. And I think it's um, Frank Rich's in Frank Rich's book. He writes about what twenty four seven news coverage does because you have to come up with something. You have to say something, um, and it has to get the audience. And so you say the most outrageous thing you can. Um, I'm not sure how we change that in a free media except having alternatives, uh, except making sure that there are alternatives and not, that's not the, the only fair that there is. Doesn't it seem that blogging and uh, the pamphleteering essentially that's going on in the Internet is breaking down the mainstream media and eliminating that kind of, uh, you have to turn to just three news channels like we did when we were kids? I think it's complicated because on the one hand, uh, uh, anonymous blogging allows for the worst of this kind of parody. I mean, I, you know, I'll go online and I'll see some decision I wrote that is completely misconstrued by the writer that, you know, and I really very much want to respond and say, you know, did you read this? Are you, do you have any idea what you're talking about? Um, on the other hand, the, it's also opened up for more, um, 
you know, more substantial blogs and more substantial online journals. I, it, I think the, the only way we're going to have to deal with the Internet, because I don't think that it's easy to regulate, is if we have brands, you know, that you know, that you know when you go to, you trust the journalism in them. Um, and the public will have to choose, but at least you know that so-and-so respects journalistic ethics and is a much more deliberative kind of blog than um, some other one. Well, we need to take a short break, and when we return, we'll hear more from Judge Gertner. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at MayItPleaseTheCourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. We're speaking with uh, U.S. District Judge Nancy Gertner from Massachusetts, uh, who is, uh, among other things, uh, now a member of the official member of the blogosphere. Uh, and... Uh, and also uh, just announced uh, recipient of, uh, or soon to be recipient next month in August uh, at the ABA annual meeting of the 2008 Thurgood Marshall Award, only the second woman ever to uh, be nominated and receive the award. Uh, tell us about that, Judge Gertner. What was your reaction on learning that you'd been uh, chosen to receive that award? I, I was, I was, I was just thrilled and humbled. Um, uh, you know that this is when I was a lawyer. You'd win cases. You'd get uh, all sorts of you know f- feedback from your clients, and but as a judge, you actually don't get that much, and you only get sometimes the criticism. And so this was a wonderful. Um, this made me feel wonderful because it was a recognition of the of a hard job, which which made me feel terrific. I wanted to ask about one of the, the when the Boston Globe uh, wrote about your blogging back in May, uh, they uh, uh, quoted Judge Selya, senior judge of the First Circuit, uh, as saying that uh, while while he respects you and and uh, is sure you've thought out the ramifications of blogging, he wouldn't do it. Uh, have you had uh, feedback from others on the bench about this? And, and if so, what's that been like? Well, I don't. 
uh, no one has said anything directly to my face except no one else is jumping in. <laughs> um, I, there, there's no question that the easier, easiest way to be a judge is to do your job, speak largely to judges, um, uh, restrict your circle of friends so that you don't run into people that could appear before you, sort of constrict your life to, to the role. I, I don't believe in that, and I don't think that we need judges to do that. In fact, I think that doing that runs the risk of you losing a sense of what the world is like and not understanding the way ordinary people act and struggle. Um, so there were lots of judges who temperamentally were not about to run the risk that I run in blogging because there is a risk. There's a risk that I will say something that someone will quote me in a case, that I'll say something that could be the fodder for a disqualification motion. There are all of those risks. And it's certainly easier not to do it than to engage. But I really do want to engage with the public on these issues. Do the lawyers that appear before you tell you that they read your blog? <laughs> you know, not yet. Um, not yet. That hasn't been. And for the most part, it's been at such a level of generality that anyone who said that in a particular case, I would know is just sucking up. Is there a... Is there a level of judge, let's let's put it that way, who, who shouldn't blog? I mean, should U.S. Supreme Court justices blog? I mean, Justice Scalia has been making the media rounds to, to uh, in part because of his book recently. Uh, is it ever, you know, would it would it be equally as appropriate for a Supreme Court judge to have a blog as for a district court judge to have a blog? Well, I mean, I think they, you know, having a blog doesn't mean that you're basically pontificating every moment, because I certainly don't. Um, they are now, this court is very active in speaking to groups, giving speeches, writing books that do essentially the same thing. Um, when Justice Breyer talks about his theory of justice, uh, his decision-making theory, he is, uh, and he'll do it in a book or he'll do it in an interview on television, uh, that's all well and good except that there's a portion of the population that that doesn't reach. And then the port, that, that, that portion, those who are on the internet all the time, only hear about their books or their discussions or their interviews mediated through somebody else. And I don't want it, my feelings and thoughts to be mediated. I want to talk directly. So I think that they could. I think that the, again, all of this is coming up with a judicial and dignified way of doing these things, but that doesn't mean you don't do them. Now that you've been on the internet for us, as you said, a lot of time, what have you found has changed in your perspective on the news and media and just the, the world in general? Have you seen a difference between the way that you react to things compared to when you simply read a newspaper? I don't think I see a difference in the way that I'm reacting. I think I see a difference. I, I begin to see uh, uh, information out there that I never saw before about the way others are reacting, you know, I mean, for example, there is a way in which the internet is like the game of telephone. When you were a child, you'd say something to the guy next to you, and he'd say something to the guy beyond, and so it would go down the line, and then it would come out at the other end totally different. The internet is, is a lot like that, where some um, misperception or even misrepresentation will be said by X, and then it is repeated infinitely. Um, and it's because of that that I think we have to be a participant in this discussion, at least to be an antidote to some of the misinformation that gets circulated. So, I mean, I, it, I'm, 
it makes it certainly troubles me a bit about people who are getting their only information from unregulated, not particularly ethical sources. Um, and I do think we have to struggle to do something about that. Not government regulation, um, but how do you begin to create to brands and um, you know certify certain sources? How do you begin to do that even within the internet? How do you sort it out? I mean, what do you? How is it that you can make a judgment call about what's true and what's not true? You you can't. You, the best you can do is to look at the source, um, you know, and know that it's a source that is well respected or not. Um, you know, the, the, because if you go online, even for the sources that are not particularly well respected, they may well have the information they have may well have come from another. It will be sourced in the usual way. It's just a source that is absurd. My kids, when they are in college, learn. I've watched the way in which they've been they've been taught to deal with the internet in terms of their research, and more recently, they've been taught never to go by anything that you see on the internet. It's a good place to start, but you have to check it out through more traditional means. And maybe that's going to be part. That's going to be the way we will brand things. We will label certain things as legitimate and other things not. Well, there was a lot of self-congratulation among bloggers uh, at the point that uh, a couple of uh, judges started actually citing to to blogs in their opinions. Uh, and but my my sense is that you're uh, you're uh, still the exception rather than the rule in terms of the judiciary and its, its use of the internet. I mean, are, are judges? Uh, uh, isolated from what's being talked about on the internet, or are they uh, becoming uh, more a part of, of at least uh, following that conversation, if not engaging in it? There's a huge generational gap. Um, think about it. I mean, there are judges and judges in their 50s and 60s who came uh, get on the bench at a time just when the internet is is breaking open, and who will. You know, some some judges you know don't deal with the computer at all, and some will just scoff at what's going on in the internet. Um, maybe judges coming on the bench in in the future will have been acclimated to dealing with these kinds of issues. So, I mean, right now the current occupants are not necessarily people who are into this and who are focused on this. Um, it's, I mean, it's it, it it's interesting. We all have to, even if you're not sort of blogging, you all have to struggle with it because. The numbers of cases that we're getting dealing with Internet uh, controversies is, is legion. Where you have to be able to sort out what's going on and what the rules are in an, in an alien environment. We are getting uh, near the end of our time, and, and uh, what we'd like to do before we wrap up our program is to give our guests an opportunity to uh, wrap up their own thoughts uh, and, and share their final thoughts on, on what we've been talking about. So uh, let us just turn it over to you, Judge Gertner, uh, at this point and, and ask for your, your final thoughts. Well, I think the, the, the singular reason to um, to deal with the public, to engage with the public and to talk about these issues is because there is so much misinformation out there, not only about a particular case or a particular judge, but about what judges do. I mean, the activist judge debate is my particular bugaboo because uh, over the course of 20 years, the scope of what federal district judges can do has become so narrow for a whole host of reasons that it, the, the, the debate is not even, it's, it's almost incoherent when we think about it. I mean, we're dealing with statute of limitations and, um, you know, standing issues and not broad constitutional issues because constitutional law has become 
about that. Um, and people don't understand how much then the activist debate is about not liking the outcome rather than anything the judge did or, or didn't do. Um, but it's a way of putting someone down. It's taking the result and not having to deal with it and just putting someone down. So the more we talk about what we do, the more we expose the shibboleths and the more maybe we can get back to respecting the institution. And, of course, the blog that you contribute to, uh, Convictions, can be found at slate.com. And uh, is there uh, any other uh, information you'd like to give our listeners in terms of uh, uh, getting in touch with you or, or following your work uh, or your writings? Well, I mean, everything I do is public. Um, the decisions I write are uh, I, I'm often published. Um, we're now completely electronic, so we have uh, people can get online and get access to court dockets. And, and in time, maybe we'll one day have cameras in the courtroom if I can, uh, if I have anything to do with it. So um, the... the you know, courts should be much more accessible to everyone in a way that they, they've never been before. Um, and that should help with the information as well. Great. Well, Judge Gertner, thank you very much for being on the program today. We really appreciate it. Uh, Bob, that about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Uh, that's right. And a reminder to our listeners that they can find all of our programs at thelegaltalknetwork.com and also in the podcast library on iTunes. Uh, thank you very much, Judge Gertner, for thank sharing you. your time and thoughts. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.